0: Well, good morning, everyone, and Merry Christmas. If I haven't introduced my name myself to you before, my name is Jimmy. Excuse me, and I've got a confession to make to you. Christmas is my favourite. Holiday, hands down, no, no, nothing else comes close. Which doesn't seem so incredible until you realise that Christmas is actually has a higher place for my family than birthdays. I'd rather have Christmas than birthdays growing up. I'd rather Christmas than Easter. Rather Christmas than, I guess, the Queen's birthday. It's a bit of rubbish holiday anyway. See, Christmas for my family meant training for me and my brother. It wasn't any slapstick scheming that went into Christmas. The whole month of December for me and my brother was put towards the aim of maximum earliness waking up and minimum quietness. See, the whole point of Christmas for me and my brother was waking up at five o'clock on the dot and making it down our creaky hallway to the presents, which were the promised land. And the only pro- problem that we had was that we did have a creaky hallway, and my mum every year for Christmas somehow transported her ears and gained the ears of a hunting dog. And so if there was like a creak, the whole operation was shut down. And so me and my brother would train when our parents weren't there, and we would develop different techniques for being able to get down the hallway. And so when we were younger, we developed the wide, wide-legged stance that would fill up the whole hallway. And so we'd make it down, we'd try and get as far apart as, as possible, which isn't actually possible in skinny jeans, <laughs> and we'd do this, the whole hallway, which worked pretty well until we got a little bit older and a little bit uh, overweight, and I fell on my face one morning, and the whole operation was bust. And it wasn't until one morning, early December, when we are waiting for Cheese TV to come on at 7 o'clock, and we were watching Auserobics and being scarred by the image of many men in spandex, that we discovered the perfect technique for getting to the Christmas tree. And we called it the mountain climber. And so it was very, very, very easy. This is how it works. In mountain climbing, when you're doing the, the exercise, if you ever done it, you have to apply equal force everywhere you go. And so we thought, okay, well, if I put socks on my hands... And I can just pull my way up the, the corridor. So kids, this is the premier technique. I'm letting you in. I'm letting you in. And so we would just do this. <laughs> up the hallway, which obviously is much harder to do with shoes on. And we would get to the Christmas tree and we would get to our presents and we would pick them up. Uh, and we'd rattle them around and see if anything was there, and then I think we'd both hug them, like bring them back to bed, which now that I've said it out loud is far stranger than it was when I was five. But Christmas was always this event in our home. And I think I've spent some years thinking about why it was so important, why did Christmas hold such an important place in our family, especially compared to birthdays and other things. And I think it was for us that Christmas was a time in our life that we could actually be transported out of our own story and into something far better. See, for the majority of my teenage years, basically as soon as I turned a teenager, my dad lost his job. My dad worked at Pacific Dunlop Tyres in Thomastown. He worked as a manager there for many, many, many years. And when they shut down the plant, he was unemployed. He was 50 years old which means that he was near retirement, but not near enough that he could actually retire. And no one was willing to give him a shot. So for four years, he was unemployed. And around this time, my mum, who is a beautiful, lovely lady, probably one of my favourite people in the entire world, she went through some incredible bullying at work and experienced an emotional and mental breakdown. And so we had this event where my dad was struggling to put food on the table, where we would go to the cupboard and the cupboard was bare, where there are events at school and with my friends that at the late moment we would have to cancel because my mum was unwell or we wouldn't be able to afford the ticket or something going on. And, you know, as a little kid, you, you don't understand the, the full impact of what's going on, but you understand there's not food in the kitchen. You know that things are not great. You know that your mum's not well. And so Christmas for me was this little moment, this little pocket in time where my story could cease to exist for a moment and I could be part of something far better. Because at Christmas time, there are always presents underneath the tree. At Christmas time, there was always a turkey and food to eat. And for me, that was so incredibly important. And really, it wasn't about the training or the, the presents. It was just... Christmas for a moment I could, I could pretend like my story wasn't, wasn't there. And I think that's what the, the really good stories do. The really good ones. They allow us to stop being part of our story and become some, part of something else. See that some stories you read them and it's sort of like watching grand final on television. You can sit there with your beer and your chips looking at other people doing incredible things, incredible feats. But the really good stories, the really great ones, the historically wonderful, the the Narnias, the Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, it's not like watching someone else do incredible things. The really good ones, you become a part of the battle. You become a part of the blood, sweat and tears as the story rolls on. And for a moment, your story ceases to exist. But the problem we have with stories is that they end. The chapter closes, the movie credits roll. And the story that we were transported into ends and we have to go back to the humdrum life. See, for me, the very worst time of year was New Year's because the spell had been broken. I believed in something more. And the very next week, the cupboard went back to being bare. I went back to not being able to afford things. We went back to my mum struggling. And so for me, I was really difficult. It was difficult when the story ended. And so we come to something like Christmas, the story of Christmas. And some of us are cynical. We've heard it all before. We've heard the story of baby Jesus in a manger. We've allowed ourselves to become transported potentially. Maybe you had a year where you were really excited about Christmas. But then the story broke. Well, I want to invite you for the next 10, 15 minutes just to suspend your disbelief, suspend your cynicism and be invited once more into the great story. So if we look on the screen, the story of Christmas begins with a virgin. This is what it says in Luke chapter 1 on the screen, the angel said to Mary, do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. To the beginning of the Christmas story, Jesus sounds like a great hero who's about to come back to set the story straight. He seems like Aslan, come to end the eternal winter in Narnia. He's like Aragorn in Lord of the Rings, exiled king, come back to set the story straight, to defeat Sauron. He's like Luke Skywalker, come back to put balance in the force. Yet that's not where the story ends. Jesus is not just the hero. In later editions of the gospel, it's very clear that Jesus is far more than just the hero of the story. In fact, we pick up John chapter 1. This is what John, a devoted disciple, someone who defined himself by his love for Jesus, described Jesus like this said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that had not been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And that seems incredibly confusing, until we realize two things. One, that in Greek philosophy, The Word, also known as the Logos, was the all-consuming life force behind the universe. Everything that existed, existed because of the Logos. And the second thing that we have to understand is that John is saying that this all-consuming, all-powerful, all-knowing force that's out there somewhere is Jesus. He's not just the hero that has come to set the story straight. He's the author who's jumped into his own story To start something new. In fact, it says far more than this. He said that there is a creator God known as Jesus who has created all things. Everything that we can see, everything that we can know, has been created by Him. Everything that can be understood is understood by Him. Everything macro, everything micro. He's created everything macro. He has put the stars in the sky. He has put the universe into order. He's put every solar system exactly where it needs to be. He knows the height of every mountain and every mountain range in every universe. He knows the depth of all the seas. But he also knows the micro and created the micro. He knows the cells. He knows my mitochondria. He knows my blood type. He knows the head of my hairs. He knows me. The Bible says this author who created all things, who knows all things, who understands all things, is Jesus, the baby born in a manger. He's the one who commands the seas to stop, and they do. He's the one who tells the mountains to move, and they do. This is the all-powerful creator who has jumped into his own story. And so the question has to be asked, why would the author jump into the story? We don't hear of Shakespeare in Romeo and Juliet. We don't hear of Charles Dickens in his stories. We don't hear of C.S. Lewis or J.K. Rowling jumping into the story and trying to set the story straight. We only hear of that in the Bible. And so why? Why does the author need to join the story? Well very clear two chapters later in John the Bible verse if you're going to get a tattoo this is a pretty good one John three sixteen says this for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life and I always looked at that verse that passage growing up and thinking, man, of course God loves this world. It's a world where presents are under trees. It's a perfect kind of world. And I think in our heads we imagine this kind of Disney world where Bambi and Mickey and Goofy all kind of play along, where Richmond have won the grand final for the last 73 years, where everyone's satisfied, where the perfect nativity scene exists. I actually got a thing about nativity scenes. I don't, I don't really understand them because they're perfect, Right, you look at them and you see Mary and she's not like even tired. She's just sort of happy. right? And I can guarantee, I don't know about you guys, but me and my wife, we fight a little bit and especially about getting to places on time. Like if we're five, 10 minutes late, like that's a, that's a bad conversation. And so I can guarantee you that if I had rocked up to Bethlehem and I hadn't booked a hospital and my wife is giving birth next to a donkey, like all hell is breaking loose. <laughs> So I don't I don't understand that because the world isn't like that isn't perfect nativity scenes where Mary's happy 5 minutes after giving birth Now in fact the word that's used here for world is a Greek word called cosmos and it has some beautiful connotations it speaks to an ordered world sometimes but in this context it doesn't in this context it means a world that is out of order a world that is broken, a world that is messy, a world that needs to be put back into place. It's a world where if you turn on the news for five minutes. It's a world where people blow each other up. It's a world where murder happens, it's a world where rape and just incredibly horrific things happen. It's broken. I think if we took five seconds, we'd go, yeah, it is broken. It is unlovable. What is going on? So it's not the perfect Disney world that God has entered into. It's not the world where Richmond has won the last 73 years of grand finals. I know that very well, unfortunately. It's a broken, messy, bloody world that God has entered into to set the story straight. The Christian understanding of brokenness is that it's not just a thing that happens out there. When we talk about the world being broken, the first place that is broken is, is me. Brokenness starts at home. I am fundamentally broken. And because I'm broken, and because Jono's broken, and because each and every one of us here is broken, we do broken things. And broken people and broken things lead to a broken world. And unfortunately, if you've ever tried to put something back together after it broke, which I have a lot of practice of, unfortunately, it's hard. There's always cracks. The world needs to be set back to order by someone who's not from here, it needs to be set back to order by the God who created all things. For the God who understands all things. For the God who came into this messy, bloody, broken world in order so that it could be set straight. That's what Jesus tells us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus has come for this world one person at a time one heart at a time, being set back. And the thing about it is that when we understand that it's me who's broken, we understand that the God who controls all things, who tells the seas to stop and the mountains to move, comes to us and instead of going, yes, God, let us obey, let us be faithful, we shake our fists at Him. We've tried to be the author of our own stories, the captain of our own ship, and we run ourselves aground and we need someone else to get us out. That's the message of Christmas, that Jesus has come to set the story straight. Jesus has come to set your story straight. This is not just a story for the good people. This is a story for the messy, broken people just like me who desperately need a new captain of the ship, who need a new king, who need a new creator to come in, become part of his story. C.S. Lewis, he said it like this. He was talking with a friend one day and talking about how before we become in Jesus, before we believe in Jesus, we're not, we're not even who we're meant to be. And so he said this, the more we let God take us over, the more truly ourselves we become because he made us. He invented us. He invented all the different people that you and I were intended to be. And it's when I turned to Christ, when I give up myself to His personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. I would add to that. It's when we turn to Christ that we actually begin to have a real story of our own. Everything else is just a shadow. Just a shadow of the real thing. So I want to invite you this morning, whether this is the first time you've come foot in church, or whether this is the 50th, whether Jesus is a regular conversation around the dinner table or whether Jesus is just a swear word. I want to invite you to become part of Jesus' story, to trust in Him, to allow Him to set your story straight. And don't let let shame take that from you. Don't let messiness take that from you. Jesus has entered into this world because of the messiness. He's not ashamed of it. He's not afraid of it. But he has come to set the story straight. And it begins at Christmas.